You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Jesus, thanks for today. Thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness. And um, thank you for the truths and realities of the gospel. And so I pray in this time that um, you would bless us through your Holy Spirit and through the reminder of what Jesus has done for us, the reminder of the great love that God has for us. And um, I pray we'd all walk out of here with a greater sense of hope, peace, and joy in Christ and um, with a life-giving sense of humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is class number two. Um, class number two of a, a little series I'm doing uh, call, uh, called Gospel Attitude. Uh, gospel Attitude. So basically it's, um, I don't know, I had... Uh, one day I was kind of thinking about how if we are like truly walking in the truth of the gospel, then, um, no, you're fine. If we're truly walking in the truth of the gospel, then um, there, there should be a natural attitude should flow out of us. One would be an attitude, an attitude of gratitude. Um, <laughs> cliche. Um, an attitude of gratitude. One of humility. And then one of compassion. Uh, the uh, at the grateful attitude would be directed in how we relate to, and see, and perceive the Lord. The attitude of humility, and how we perceive of ourselves, and the attitude of compassion in relation to how we uh, relate to and perceive others. An attitude is how we um, perceive. Uh, perceive life and reality, and that attitude usually translates into behavior. So if we're having a, um, you know, oh, this is the faith and family class, but you know, I think one thing I'll hear as a refrain with my kids is either, hey, you're having a bad attitude, or then on the other hand, hey, you're having a really good attitude. That's a good attitude. You know, praise that. So like this morning, one of my children, um, he... Um, uh, this is maybe I shouldn't probably record this, but one thing I will let my children do as a means of getting them out the door is I'll say, "Would y'all like to turn on the car?" <laughs> I'll give them the keys. I'll let them put the key in the ignition and turn the crank. Right? Maybe a little dangerous, but you know what? Gets them out the door. So, um, so I said, "Would one of y'all like to? Would y'all like to turn on the car?" And uh, and so my son Hutch said, "Oh, I want to." And he took the keys, and then he said to his sister, "Sissy, would you like to would you like to be the one to turn to turn on the ignition?" And I was like, "That's a winning attitude. Like we can win a lot of ball games with that attitude right there." So praise, 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 praise. Good attitude, right? Um, and so, um, so this, it's just terminology we use a lot uh, with in, with our children, but we also use it um, kind of in relation just to ourselves in terms of our parenting. You know, do we have a grateful attitude in our lot there? Um, do we have a, um, are, we, are we operating in humility? Are we operating with compassion towards others? And so um, one of the kind of big things we talked about, and by the way, if you don't have children at this point, not only can you like tuck these little, tuck this, little, oh, this away for the future, but it's, this is going to be universally applicable. So don't worry. It's not just going to be insider baseball relative to parenting. Um, but uh, one, the, one of the big things that we established last week is that, you know, we are, either walking under a narrative of the flesh or walking under a narrative of the gospel. Um, and when I use the word flesh there, uh, you know, when, when that term is used in the New Testament, in Paul in particular, 
um, that is um, the flesh is spoken of in like redemptive historic terms. That's that's like a period, an age um, of time, an age of history. And that is the age pre-Christ coming, the age of the flesh. So when Paul in Romans 8 talks about walking in the flesh, um, he's talking about it both at a big picture, uh, redemptive historic level um, in terms of the age before Christ came. Uh, and he's talking about it at an individual level when we ourselves operate as if Jesus never came. Um, whereas he talks about the age of the spirit. So I'm using the terminology gospel here. But so when we're op- a lot of times when we are operating in the, with the, under a narrative of the flesh, there's this idea of God is against me. God's not for me. Um, I have been left to my own devices. Uh, I, and that's kind of our view of God. Then at the individual level, there's a mentality of, I can do this on my own. I'm fine. I'm entitled. And, and that, that, is, that is an attitude representative of living under the flesh, living under the, the narrative of the flesh. On the other side, an attitude of the gospel, um, and, and, and when we're having a bad attitude about things, when we're complaining, when we've got the woe is me's, and we're you know, kind of uh, languishing in self-pity, um, generally that bad attitude, having a bad attitude, another term for that is uh, an attitude that is representative of the narrative of the flesh. <laughs> okay, so then on the other side, a good attitude usually develops when we repent from that attitude of the flesh, which is our natural mode. As sinners, we naturally wake up operating as if we're all in, God's not for us, we're entitled, we're the center of the world, why can't everybody just accommodate me, right? Um, when we repent uh, by, you know, by the, the power and grace of the Spirit and we walk under a narrative of the gospel, well, then the mentality is, you know, I was a sinner who was lost, um, and Jesus came and rescued me. He brought me into his family. He uh, dwells in my heart through the Holy Spirit now, and he rules over me with kindness and with generosity and goodness, and um, he has been generous to me. Everything I have is a gift from him, um, and, as, you know, and, so, and my home is in heaven. Like This life is, this life is as bad as it's going to get. It's only getting better from here with eternal life with Christ. And so when we're living under that, we just inherently are going to have a better attitude. Um, we're going to be more grateful, humble, and compassionate. And so today we're going to focus on the humility end of this. And so there are going to be three, um, three points I'll kind of I want to make. Uh, one is going to be humility is neither arrogant nor is neither arrogance nor shame. Um, a lot of times we tend to think of, well, I'll get to that in a second. All right, next, uh, we find true humility in the tension of our sinfulness and our righteousness through Christ and in the tension of God's holiness and God's love. Uh, there's a, a humility is this, in that tension, there's a sense that we are adequate but not better than others. Uh, we have a sense of worthiness, but we're no more worthy than anybody else. Uh, and then finally, humility leads to self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice and love. Um, so first, first, what humility is not and we're, in particular, we're going to focus on perceiving ourselves in relation to others or our performance. Uh, that's that, the, doing those things, operating out of comparison, uh, perceiving, uh, uh, sorry, perceiving ourselves in terms of comparison or in terms of performance will undermine humility inherently. Um, and so I'm going to talk a lot about how we perceive ourselves and how that, how that, leads to our attitude, because as I said before, I said, 
gratitude in relation to God, humility in relation to myself, compassion in relation to others. So, um, so first, um, it's interesting how when I looked at the, the words, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for humility in the Old Testament and the New Testament respectively, that um, both of them had what you would call, in both of those, the terms are negatively defined first. So humility is not arrogant, not prideful. Um, and then there are other positive definitions as well. Um, but it's, it, with that being said, it is a value to, to define humility in negative terms. Humility is first not shame, and it's also not arrogance. A lot of times we think of humility as like debasing ourselves or devaluing ourselves. We're like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm worthless. Well, that's not actually necessarily humility in the biblical sense. Because here's the thing, um, humility, or sorry, arrogance and shame are really kind of uh, two sides of the same coin. So when we're arrogant, we have too high a view of ourselves. You know, we think we're, um, we think we're better than others. Uh, we internalize our abilities and our accomplishments as if they're a statement about us, and that kind of raises us above the reality of who we are. At the same time, shame, where we have a view of ourselves as being worthless, unworthy of love and connection, well, in a sense, there's an arrogance in that as well. And the arrogance is believing that our sin is so great that it's greater than our inherent dignity as people made in the image of God, or that it's greater than, um, greater than the love and the righteousness that we've received through Christ. And so there's still an arrogance and shame. And so, um, and so with that being said, uh, what we'll see here is when we perceive of ourselves in comparison to other people, uh, then uh, it, it's going to lead usually to shame or arrogance. Um, there's a, there's a, a saying, comparison is the thief of joy, uh, but it's also a thief of humility as well. <laughs> so in terms of like how kids can, can fall into this, um, it's funny, we're gonna, I'm going to be talking as if two teenagers are not in the room, but y'all, y'all can identify with this. So on one hand, th- this, these are some ways that uh, teenagers tend to perceive, a, well, I mean, not just teenagers, but um, kids in general tend to perceive of themselves in relation to others. One, one example would be partying. So for kids who don't sleep or aren't sleeping around, they look at their friends and they're like, those people are heathens. And I'm a pious Christian. I'm a good Christian, you know? And there's a, there can be this sense of self-righteousness and arrogance. And I think any, any like, and I, I, I was in this category, and Connor was as well, any teenager who wasn't partying in high school, your big struggle was generally self-righteousness, you know, kind of judging others and looking down on others. And as a result of that, in your arrogance, you're blind to your own sin. All of a sudden, like, you know, gossiping or... Um, you know, whatever it may be, or being self-righteous and judgmental, <laughs> for whatever reasons, we kind of give ourselves a pass or just completely look over that, you know. And so, so anyhow, so comparison can lead to arrogance. Well, then on the other side of that, comparisons can also lead to shame. Um, you know, if it's a, a child has made certain mistakes, they've crossed certain lines, um, particularly like in the, in the arena of sex um, and, or lust, and others haven't, there can be this sense of shame of like, I am so much worse 
I am so unworthy. Um, or it could just be as simple as uh, Instagram, which is the great thief of joy, for particularly for high school girls. Sorry, Virginia. Um, is, you know, uh, I've it, basically, it can be for boys as well. Uh, but anyhow, the sense of your, and, and for parents, it's, how about we say Instagram can be the great thief of joy and humility for all humanity. <laughs> because you see like, oh man, like there, that my friends are all hanging out and I wasn't invited. I'm such a loser. Um, or gosh, look at, look at the cool place where they're on vacation and we just stayed in town. Um, or man, look at the new, uh, the new like way they've remodeled their kitchen and gosh wouldn't we love to put some new countertops in or a new um, splashback or whatever um and so uh and so with that being said comparison perceiving ourselves in comparison to others either leads to arrogance or to shame but and this can be really parents oh boy there's a really dangerous slippery slope that parents fall into of evaluating their parenting performance in relation to the performance of their children <laughs> and so you know, you can be the family that's always late. Your kids are, you know, always have like food on their face. Their, their hair's not combed. You know, their, their clothes are disheveled. And you're, you know, it's kind of like every attempt to get out of the house is, is like a hurricane, you know? And then you see the family that's always like 30 minutes early. And their children look like they've brushed and flossed like twice before they've, you know, gotten out of bed. Um, and there can be this sense of like, gosh, we are terrible parents. Like we just cannot get our act together. So there's the shame. And then on the other hand, you um, can be the parent, not that I've ever done this, where you see other families and, they, you, and you perceive based on the, you know, the like uh, one thousandth of one percent of the time of parenting that you get to observe of them that they just don't ever discipline their kids. There's no discipline in that house. You know, like I've seen them for five minutes in the last month and I just can tell you that they don't, there's no discipline in that household and their kids have tantrums and meltdowns and you're like, well, we, we discipline our kids. We're good, we're good parents in this house, you know? And, uh, and so you become self-righteous, you know? It's, you're out in public and you see the, the, you know, the kid having the total Chernobyl caliber meltdown and, and you just, just mm. Judge, 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 you know, like, gosh, our kids are good. It's so funny. My children have this uh, hilarious, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's a, a blessing or if it's a curse, but when they're around my parents, my kids just like show up on their manners. It's just like, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. And so my parents have this very unrealistically inflated view of both my children and their son as a parent. Just because my kids like throw on good manners in that like one little arena. I don't know why it is, I don't, I don't know. But grandma and grandpa are, are, they're very proud. And I'm like, this, this is not a realistic depiction of life in our house. <laughs> Anyhow, so there you go. So the arrogance, right? Like y'all do such a good job. Yes, we're great parents. Anyhow, all right, so then on the other hand, I'm gonna breeze through this. Uh, when we perceive ourselves based on our own performance. So, you know, in, in brief terms, you're a student and uh, a kid makes good grades, I'm so smart. You make bad grades, I'm so dumb, I'm worthless. You're a parent, your kids demonstrate good manners in public, I'm such a good parent. Your child is acting out uh, and getting in trouble, I'm an awful parent. You're a parent, you lose your temper, I'm a terrible parent. Um, you're patient, I'm a great parent. It's this, you know, 
this is this is the nature of the law. This is the nature of living in a performance-based identity. Is you're either arrogant or you're in shame, and it's never in between. And so the gospel um, takes us into the in-between. And so as we move to our second point, if you have your little handout, uh, page number two, point number two, humility comes when we perceive ourselves in relation to God and in relation to the gospel. Um, So starting with, um, before I kind of get into in relation to God and in relation to the gospel, a couple of concepts just to hit. One, I love these little conceptual frameworks. Concept one is dignity versus depravity. So dignity speaks to how every human being has worth, every human being um, has dignity, uh, and, and every human being is sacred because they are made in the image of God. God has breathed life into them. And because of um, the special place that each person has in creation and the way that God made them, there's immense value um, in each person. So that's the dignity part. Then there is the depravity part, that every human being is also a sinner, um, a sinner that's, that's earned God's judgment. And so you have these two coexisting things in, in every person. And, um, and I'll say this is part of, um, in terms of making sense of reality, uh, this is part of the strength of Christianity, is that um, not to go down a long road that I love to talk about presuppositionalism and John Frame and all of that wonderful stuff, um, but to be able to kind of hold things in tension because understanding people is a hard thing um, because on one hand we have people who are, people are filled with dignity, but at the same time like people can be really bad. <laughs> and, and that's kind of true of all of us. And so there's that, there's that tension there. Concept number two, um, and by the way, that dignity versus depravity is true of all people. So then concept number two, Smuyustus epicator means I am at the same time righteous and a sinner. I'm at the same time a saint and a sinner. And so this is, this is true of someone who's put their faith in Christ. So, um, you know, when you ask Christ to be your savior, uh, you, you do become righteous. Like the, your sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus, uh, you're accounted righteous like Jesus. So God regards you as perfectly acceptable in every way. Uh, and you, it's, you know, you're still a sinner until you get to heaven, until your soul is glorified your will's glorified and you never sin again. And so these two things are coexisting for the rest of your life on earth. You know, you are simultaneously an adopted child of God who is righteous and forgiven, and you're also a sinner who tends to tends to move towards self-absorption and tends to want to rebel against God's law. And so um, and so with that being said, the um, the righteous side or the digni- dignity side of the equation, um, it uh, it, appropri- it gives us an appropriately high view of self, a sense of self-acceptance, and a sense of comfort in our own skin. That like, hey, through Christ, I'm enough. You know, I'm not, I can't do anything to lower my value. I can't do anything to improve my value. I'm as worthy as I'll ever need to be before a holy God. And so that appropriately lifts us up, lifts us up in a good way. And then the center depravity side, it, it gives us an appropriately low view of ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, and so if we forget either of these two, we're going to move in the direction of either shame or arrogance. And so humility comes from living in the tension of both the fact that I'm a sinner and 
that I'm forgiven and I'm righteous. You know, that I'm rebellious and I'm an adopted child of God. I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And when we're living in both in that both and, that tension, uh, which is tough, then we have an appropriate level of humility um, where it's like, I'm not better than anybody else, but, I am, I'm, but I'm also, I have worth and dignity. You know, and that's, that's where, that's what humility looks like. And so, um, and so with that being said, um, this, um, this little chart here, I don't know if everybody here can have a little chart for a second here, because you've probably seen this before, but, um, but anyhow, on the chart, this is, I call this kind of like the, the cross-centered life chart. Um, and so basically on, on, on one column you have the hard news and on the other column you have the nice news. <laughs> you can tell that I developed this. <laughs> Primarily for teenagers. And then it's news, thanks man. And then it's news about God and news about mankind. And so the hard news about God is that God is holy and just. Completely intolerant of sin. Completely intolerant of wrong and injustice. Um, and that he punishes all sin. And that can be hard news if you're a sinner. Um, it's good news when, in relation to the promises of God, because you're like, hey, the person who's made all these promises to me of my, of my worth and, and his presence and his blessing on my life and, and eternal life, he is perfect. And he is never going to you know, stray from that. But in, uh, as it pertains to our sinfulness, that can be some hard news. <laughs> um, on the other side, the nice news is that God is loving and merciful. Um, now, the hard news about mankind is that we're sinners, that we've earned the judgment of God. But the nice news is that we're loved and valued. God cares about our life so much that he's sent his son to die for us. And so, um, and so this, uh, you know, perceiving ourselves in relation to the gospel, it really kind of flows out of this cross-centered life. And so in relation to God, um, when we are, and by the way, I'm, you know, naturally we perceive of ourselves in terms of others, like our experience and our performance. That's, that's our natural sinful mode. Um, and so, uh, so repentance in terms of how we're identifying ourselves um, and our attitude towards ourself um, is going to be, repentance looks like viewing ourselves in relation to God and viewing ourselves in relation to the gospel. So on the, the, the God side, um, there is um, an interesting connection between humility and the fear of the Lord in Proverbs. Uh, I did kind of like a little word study of humility in the Old Testament, and you see uh, Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Then you see Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And so the fear of the Lord, it, it put very, very simply, feel free to take off your mask if you want to drink some water. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, the fear of the Lord is very simply understanding that God is God and I am not. That's a, that's a very simple way to understand it. Because in our sin, we think I am God and God's another God or a lesser God. Um, but the fear of the Lord is saying that no, God is God, I'm not. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a limited, flawed, dependent human being. And so the fear of the Lord is, is a really, um, in one sense, is identifying oneself in relation to the Lord appropriately. Uh, and so as a result of that, you see that um, humility and the fear of the Lord go hand in hand. Because when I look at God and his holiness, um, it's, it humbles me. You know, when you see people in the Bible <clears throat> like Ezekiel and Isaiah 
and, uh, and Moses and others who see the holiness of God, the glory of God is revealed. I mean, boom, they hit the deck. They are immediately humbled. Uh, there is no, there is no you know, delusional self-identification before when you see the glory of God. So it humbles them. And when you see the love of God, particularly the reality that we are the object of God's love, that raises us up. So, um, so the holiness of God humbles us. The love of God uh, restores us, encourages us, elevates us. And so finding that place of humility um, comes in the tension of God's holiness and God's love. Now, um, when we go to... Oh, yeah, and also... It's also a great equalizer because every person is equally sinful before God. You know, like James is like, if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. That's, that's just how it is. And, um, and so it kind of, there's, you know, in our temptation to identify ourselves in relation to other people, you know, we say, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, just, as, I'm just as sinful as that person. You know, I'm, I'm no better, I'm no worse. Um, on the other side, we are all equally loved by God. You know, uh, it's not like the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, there's not like there's a premium package or a gold or a silver package. Like it is, it is all premium, <laughs> and we all receive it in that way. And so, um, and so, uh, so that being said, it enables us to have humility in relation to others, and to say like, hey, I'm just as sinful, and I'm also just as loved, and. And so we're all on the same plane in that way because we're defining things in relation to God, God in absolute terms. Okay, so then in relation to the gospel, and you know, the gospel being the good news of God's love for sinners through Christ, um, you know, on one sense, we recognize in the gospel the bad news that I am a sinner. I, I am a sinner who is desperately in need of the grace uh, and the mercy of God. And I am also... Uh, righteous. You know, we think about all the different benefits of the gospel that um, we've been made righteous, we've been forgiven, we're adopted children of God, we're washed clean and pure, uh, we have a home in heaven, we're sons and daughters of the Most High God, that lifts us up. And so, again, uh, there is that tension, the tension of the part of the gospel that humbles us and the part of the gospel that raises us up and encourages us, and it brings us into a place of proper humility. All right, so one little thing here I have uh, is this gospel catechism. And so um, thinking, uh, thinking in terms of um, thinking in terms of like for a teenager or for a parent and encouraging a child in general, we, um, we have two different gospel catechisms that we kind of recommend for parents to use with their kids. One is kind of the one for smaller kids, and then we call that just the gospel catechism. That's um, what, is, uh, what does gospel mean? Good news. What is the good news? Jesus died for my sins. Why did he die for your sins? So I can have a relationship with God. Who loves you the most? God. Who loves you the second most? Mom and dad. Um, what can I do by God's power and grace? Hard things. So that's I, I, like we, we encourage families in our church to say that to their kids every day. Like when they drop them off at school or when they put them to bed or whatever. We recommend that particularly for, say, like fourth grade down. Um, now, when kids start to get uh, not to say that that is not applicable to every human being, because it's certainly a, a blessing to say that for me to say that with my kids every day. But um, uh, but we particularly recommend this gospel identity catechism for parents to use with teenagers and for teenagers themselves to kind of memorize and internalize and to say to themselves. 
And so this is uh, the Gospel Identity Catechism goes like this. Who does the Spirit say you are? One who is washed and clean. Who does Jesus say you are? One who is forgiven and righteous. Who does the Father say you are? One who is an adopted child of God. Who are you? A sinner saved by grace. So you can see in there, it is reinforcing, one, that we identify ourselves in relation to God and in relation to the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, who we are through the redeeming work of Christ. Um, and so it reminds us of those things. Uh, and then finally, at the end, you see it, who, who are you? I'm a sinner saved by grace. There is that kind of proper admonition. But I'll just say, I would say most teenagers are struggling far more with shame than they are with arrogance. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, I mean, we're all, you know, like I said, if you're there, it's two sides of the same coin and um, two sides of the same coin. And a lot of times when a, when a person comes across as arrogant, we all know this, then the, in reality, there's a ton of insecurity and shame below that. seems like the more arrogant a person is, the more like deep insecurity there is and shame there is. So anyhow, but the gospel identity catechism is meant to help a student to walk under that narrative as they think about themselves. And we believe that when we you know, internalize these things, that we're washed, clean, forgiven, righteous, child of God, that, and, and we're a sinner saved by grace, that that kind of leads us to have uh, a sense of proper humility. And I think something that's interesting is um, uh, how humility, uh, the word for humility in Hebrew, uh, it also has connotations of meekness, gentleness, and sincerity. Uh, the sense, you know, a person who's humble, they just seem like they're comfortable in their own skin. And I don't know about you, but like, that to me is like the best place to be. Being in a place where you just kind of feel comfortable in your own skin. And that's how Paul's all actually defines righteousness. And like, he did not, that's not like the technical in the dictionary definition, but he says, hey, here's a way to think about righteousness. Righteousness is you're comfortable in your own skin. Because, you know, you're enough, your sins are forgiven, you, there's a sense of adequacy and a sense of worthiness through Christ. And so, um, and so the final thing here is, um, final thing is that humility tends to, well, no, I'm not going to go on this. I was going to say the third point, humility leads to self-sacrificing service. I was going to look at Philippians 2, um, where you look, it says you should have the same attitude of Christ. And it looks at Christ, you know, his humility as a person in relation to God and how that leads to self-sacrificing service. But I'm not going to really spend a ton of time there because I've already given a ton of content and it's about to get water hose, you know, too much is too much. So we're not going to go there. We're just going to go to practical and then we can have discussion. Um, so on the practical side, uh, in terms of as a person, as a parent, uh, how, we, how we lead our kids toward humility and how we lead ourselves toward humility. First, I think it is incredibly important to monitor comparison. Uh, I, it is so very difficult um, as a parent to not compare yourself to other parents, not compare your family to other families. Um, and for, for worse on either side, either it makes us arrogant and self-righteous, or it makes us feel, have this, you know, ungodly sense of, of shamefulness. And so, 
and so in terms of just the inner conversation as a parent, it's very important to monitor that. And I think that's part of why, too, um, this is something that every person needs to do for themselves, but I think social media um, can, be, can be dangerous in this way. And so, you know, as adults, we kind of need to monitor the effect that that, um, that that has on us. And, you know, ask the Lord for a discipline to be like, you know, I need to maybe shut this down for a while. Um, or I need to check my heart or I need to limit myself in some kind of way. Um, so monitor comparison to others. And then also, too, um, when we see our kids comparing themselves to others to say, no, 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 no. You know, that is, um, that is, that, that's a, that's a, a, a pathway to misery. <laughs> a, path, a pathway to misery either, either, either down Arrogant Street or Shame Street, either way. Um, and so, so to always be kind of monitoring that and to always kind of bring back self-identification towards God and towards who we are in the gospel. Okay, so then second, uh, be careful not to attach performance to identity. So don't affirm personhood based on performance. So I think, um, you know, as a parent, we always want to, like, encourage our kids. We want to affirm our children, and they do, they do something good, and so on and so forth. I think this can be particularly, I think we have to be particularly care about, careful about this in relation to, like, school and athletics and, you know, different performance-based venues. And so an example of this would be, like one of my kids had a smashing hit yesterday in baseball, just cranked the ball, and it was like, whoa, didn't know he had it in him. Um, and so, uh, like, I say, hey, that was a really good hit. I'm really happy for you. Like, I'm really happy for you. Um, rather than saying, like, I'm proud of you, or you're a, you're a good hitter, that, that, then that is kind of saying, internalizing who you are is that you can hit the ball really well. And, um, and so always kind of being careful we can affirm behavior. We can encourage behavior. I think we want to be careful not to use the word proud in relation to anything that a child does. Frank Limehouse would say, and he rebuked me on live Facebook Live, saying, I say, you know what I'm proud of you? Like I say, I say to my children, I'm proud of you because you're my child. Like I'm so proud of you because you're my daughter. I'm so proud of you because you're my son. Uh, Frank says you should never say proud of anything. Um, so, you know, that, and I, I said, Agree to disagree, Limehouse. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, but you know, it's kind of like they say, you know, if your spouse ever asks you, "Why do you love me?" which I hope your spouse doesn't say that, they say, "I love you because I love you." You know, it's not I don't love you because you're pretty or because you're smart or because you're successful or you're charming or all those things. I love you because I love you. Because then, if you if you were to say anything beyond that, then it suggests that you love them based on their performance, and it's conditional. And that's not true love. Like, the Lord does not love us with strings attached. He doesn't love us based on our performance. He loves us based on the perfect performance of Jesus. And, uh, and so that's just a gift. And so, um, consequently, if we, um, yeah, by performing, we, we kind of can reinforce this uh, mentality that, that leads to an absence of humility when we, when we um, affirm performance. I think basically what I'm saying is we need to recognize that the natural way we identify ourselves is in relation to other people and our own performance. And we just want to be very sensitive to that and try to, um, try to point it towards the Lord. Uh, okay, third thing, when we see arrogance or self-righteousness in our kids, um, then we 
you know, this is where the holiness of God and the realities of our sinfulness are a proper way um, to kind of, I don't know if the word would be rebuke, um, <laughs> a child. That, that, that's, you know, um, if, you see, if you see a, whether, yeah, if you see your child being particularly arrogant and self-righteous, reminding, reminding again, pointing us towards relate, uh, identifying ourselves in relation to the holiness of God and our own sinfulness is a proper way to do that. I do find, though, that life tends to be a great teacher, particularly for the arrogant and self-righteous. And life tends to do a lot of humbling. And so when I, I would say as a youth pastor, um, I usually, when I see a, a teenager who's operating, like acting self-righteous or um, arrogant, then I may gently, maybe gently kind of you know, rebuke them a little bit with these things. But usually I'm like, life's going to take care of this. <laughs> Life grinds us all into the pavement pretty hard. Um, and then finally, when we see shame, exhort with the truths of the gospel. Um, and that tends to lead us to a place of proper humility. So to, to land the plane, I think the key thing here is we don't want to identify ourselves in terms of, or our children, in terms of performance and uh, others. And we want to repent from that and move to identifying ourselves in relation to God and the gospel. And when we live in that tension, that similar use of that Picatra tension, that dignity and depravity tension, that will naturally give us a humble attitude uh, in relation to ourselves, which is a really comforting, um, life-giving place to live. So that is all I have to say. If anybody have any questions, there are, there are wiser and better parents in here than I. Oh, I just identified myself in terms of comparison. Yeah. Um, but have any input or questions or thoughts? Yes, Mort, what's up? Oh, this, this is actually, this is a lot. This is pretty dense. Um, um, it takes a lot of self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, this is, when you really start thinking about it, I mean, uh, I'm just curious when you're dealing with teenagers, um, that line between, um, well, like, we all know people who can be overly critical of themselves. Yeah. And are blind to it. Mm-hmm. They've got a tape recorder going in their head. Yeah. Or we all know people who sometimes um, maybe are overly impressed with themselves about certain things, yeah. and they're blind to it. Yeah. You know, how, how do you, I don't know, how do you foster that kind of self-awareness? I mean, it's, yep. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the hand rule. I heard, so, so the hand rule is find five people in your life whose opinion you really are going to listen to huh. and tell everyone else to go to Hades. It's good because you, you, you have to have feedback from somebody. Yeah, right. Yeah. You, got, you, gotta, you, yep. you need that. But if you get more than five, now you're a people pleaser and, and you've sort of lost your own self-identity. Well, that that's good. Sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so find the five, listen to them, pay close attention. Everyone else. Can yeah, right. Don't don't get sure. Now, now now you're kind of now now your identity is not you're not you're not a you anymore. You're sure pleasing others. So. Yeah, I think that that is a really good observation in the sense of this takes a lot of self awareness and it takes high emotional intelligence. And I'll say as a parent, I, I think that that is one of the central roles of a parent is to help a child grow in emotional intelligence. And so. Um, and so, with that being said, 
like talking with a child, helping a child process how they're feeling, helping a child process how they're viewing themselves. Um, those kind of that kind of guidance from a parent towards a child is how and that's that's how um, a person comes to a healthy place of humility. Uh, and but it doesn't it doesn't just come natural. People just don't naturally in a box. You know, just one day wake up and they have greater self awareness. I mean, there are certain things that happen neurologically as we get older that do give us greater tools cognitively to have better self awareness. But, um, but yeah, that like that's that's why like heart level emotional conversations, verbal processing with a child is really important, and that's why, like you said, um, having uh, having like good trusted Christian community having people that you invite to speak into your life is really really important because you're right we are not naturally self-aware um, and I think a lot of us would say the self-awareness we have came from a friend saying you know you know you're you are kind of this way talked from last week about how I had a friend of a female friend um, back in my early 20s say to me like, I, I kind of made a jerk of myself in a situation, and I didn't. I didn't realize it. Uh, somebody said something that was outrageous at a, at a, at a, at a, we're out to dinner, and uh, and I just like went into kind of argument mode, and I was like, "That's ridiculous." Let me tell you why. And da 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 da, argued and argued, and then I kind of noticed everyone at the table had this awkward look, and I was like, "That's kind of weird. Why is everybody so awkward?" And my friend, she's like, "You need to be aware that you are really big." And you're really loud, and you're really, really passionate, and you're a man. And so, with those things coming together, like you can kind of drop a bomb at a table if you don't temper yourself. And so, that is a self awareness that came from a friend gently speaking into my life. So, yeah, that's a great word, Word Mort. I like that. Questions, comments? Feed us with wisdom. People who have more experience. Cameron, years ago I did a study um, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the word meekness. It, it has a connotation of being weak. Meekness. Yeah. And it's not what it means. It's not, yeah. So the, that Greek word, and I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it, it conveys a strength because you're trusting. Hmm. Not just I'm afraid to speak, but I don't have to speak. Or I don't have to push myself forward. Because huh. I'm already taken care of. Yeah, right. Ooh, that's good. I I I uh, maybe remember this wrong, but in the Beatitudes in particular where it talks about blessed are the meek. Yeah. I think there is too also a sense of one does not value themselves either greater or less than another person. Yeah. So I think there is kind of like a um, I, there, yeah, yeah. That's great. Good stuff. All right, I think I need to land. I need. I think I need to to, to end this. So I'm gonna pray, and then uh, we can all go get ready to see the SEC championship game. All right, uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truths and the realities of the gospel that um, you have uh, brought us in to your love and brought us into relationship with you, brought us into your family and. I pray, God, that we would uh, operate with humility in a way that's, that glorifies you and that uh, reflects the humility of Christ 
and the meekness of Jesus. And so uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.